Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So this week I saw a commercial that said there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I thought the timing of that is pretty ironic since everyone who shows up at Revision on Sunday is getting a free lunch. But I understand the sentiment behind it, this thinking that if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, and if something claims to be free, it probably isn't. There's got to be a catch in the fine print that says you got to pay it off later in an installment plan somehow. And I think we believe that because most of us have learned the hard way it's true. I first learned it from something called Columbia House. And all the old people like me who went to high school in the 1900s are laughing right now because they know exactly what I'm talking about. Back in the day, we didn't have Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music, so we had to go buy physical copies of CDs when we had music that we liked, but they were expensive. They're like three, four hours worth of minimum wage. And then something happened. On any random day in the 90s, you'd go to your mailbox and one of these bad boys would be waiting for you. And... I got it, and it sucked me right in along with everybody else. I knew it was like 12 CDs for a penny. No way, that's unreal. And the deal was like you got six for a penny, then you had to buy six or eight at regular price over the next couple years, and then you got six more free. And so I did some math in my teenage brain, and I thought, this is a no-brainer. It's like I'm stealing from Columbia House, and I signed right up. And it was only after I signed up that I learned two things. Number one, regular price at Columbia House is not the same thing as regular price at Walmart or Target or Sam Goody, which was a whole store in the mall that just sold music. It's crazy. Columbia House had a markup. And the second thing I learned was that as a member, Columbia House would now be sending me a CD I didn't want every single month. And if I forgot to mail it back within a week, I got to keep it and be charged for it. So at the end of my contract with Columbia House, I got my 12 CDs plus a whole bunch more that I didn't want at all. And they weren't a penny. I would have saved so much money just going out and buying whatever CDs I really wanted on my own. And that's when I learned that uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And this is my subtle way of letting you guys all know the food trucks and ice cream are not actually free today. I hope you brought cash. So I'm just kidding. They are. But Sometimes I think we take this skepticism about stuff that's too good to be true and we apply it to the gospel. This good news message that the God of the universe loved us so much that he stepped out of eternity into the fabric of the human story and gave everything so we could be forgiven and set free. That hope is real and meaning is real and purpose is real and they count for us because Jesus loves us. And that death doesn't get to write the final chapter of our stories. That's the gospel. And we hear from the church that it's, that it's free, but something inside us harbors the suspicion that it can't be. That somehow, someway, God's got to expect us to pay him back for that over the course of our lifetimes. And when we think that way about God, it really, re- or it really messes up the way that we relate to him. And the way we think about him, and it leaves us in a space where a whole lot of us just have a hand up to faith altogether, or we have the joy just sucked out of our relationship with Jesus. 
And so what I want to do this morning is talk about what God really wants from you. And we're going to do that by looking at a passage that has been messing me up a little as it relates to what God really wants for me. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of John, chapter 21. If you don't have one, no worries, worries, you can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you don't own a Bible or your kids don't, we have them for a bunch of different ages and a bunch of different colors with reading plans back at that Next Steps table. We love it when they disappear. There's no strings attached. Just grab whatever you need before you leave today. Here's a little bit of background about John 21. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to his disciples a couple times, but then he goes away for a while, long enough that they start to wonder, was that a ghost? Was it a dream? Did we all eat bad sandwiches? The mayo and we just tripped out for a while? Like, weird. Ah, let's go home. And then they all go home. They leave Jerusalem and go back to Galilee. And then something happens. Jesus shows up and meets them there and makes them breakfast. And it's incredibly profound if we understand what he's doing. This is what John writes in John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Time out, before we go any further. This is an interesting collection of people, and the way John describes them is kind of weird. First, you got Simon Peter, who had a full heart and a less full brain. He was just always charging forward, but he didn't know where forward should be a lot of the time. He was like a ready, fire, aim guy. And he's the dude who looked at Jesus and said, I will never deny you. I'll die with you. And then less than a day later, pretended that he'd never even met Jesus because he got scared he was going to get arrested. So he's just a massive hypocrite. And then you got Thomas, who John says, everybody called him Didymus. It means twin. He must have had a twin brother or sister. But we don't call Thomas Didymus now, do we? If you grew up in or around church, you maybe know the nickname we use for Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas was a guy who heard that Jesus was risen from the dead and said, no, he's not. I mean, I spent three years with the guy. I saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. I saw him do all sorts of crazy miracles and feed thousands of people and heal sick people, make blind people see, but people can't raise themselves from the dead. There's no way. He was a skeptic. Then you got Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, who when he first met Jesus, insulted him. Some people are like, yo, Nate, that Jesus dude over there, he is the Savior. He's the promised Messiah. And Nathaniel said, ah, he's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of there. It's a barren wasteland full of idiots, like Nebraska. That's what he said. The way we feel about Nebraska is how Nathaniel felt about Nazareth, and I personally don't think it's a coincidence that they both start with N and have eight letters. I'm just saying, think about that stuff. But Nathaniel, he first met Jesus from this place of deep cynicism. And then those guys were there, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were there. But Jesus didn't call them that. He had a nickname for those two. He called them the Sons of Thunder, which sounds like a really awesome superhero name, right? It wasn't. It was not a compliment. Jesus called them that because they were a little bit aggressive. They were some rough-around-the-collar, blue-collar dudes in the way that they talked and the way that they lived and the way that they were always ready to roll up their sleeves and mix it up. 
Like at one time they're walking through and there was this town that kind of didn't let them come in. They're like, no, nah, we, don't, we don't want you guys. And James and John, the sons of thunder, come up to Jesus. They're like, hey man, you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume this town and kill everybody? We'll do it. We're ready. And Jesus had to be like, no, no. When did I ever start the fireball ministry? This is not one of the things that we do. No. So they're just judgmental and self-righteous, and they lack any sort of grace for, for other people. So all of them are there, and then you got two other guys. That's what John writes. He's like, yeah, there's, there's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, two other dudes. One of them was him, but the other one, that's one of John's friends, and he doesn't even write his name down. Like, this wasn't a random guy that was just hanging out. He says it's one of the disciples. I bet it was Thaddeus. That guy never gets any credit. He's the least famous disciple ever. But the problem is, the reason I feel so bad, he was still alive when John wrote the book. And so he's, right, he's reading it, and John's like, yeah, there's Peter and Nate and Tom and James and John and me and another guy. And Thaddeus is like, well, what the heck, man? I was in your wedding, and now I'm just some dude? Like, I was there, and I'm this completely anonymous, invisible part of a story I was actually part of. It's weird that John writes it this way, but I think he's doing something intentional. He's trying to show us the kind of people Jesus invites to his table. And I wonder, as you think about it, whether you can see yourself in one of these guys in the story. I can at some point in my life, I've been like every single one of them. I've been a hypocrite. I've been a cynic. I've been a skeptic. I've been judgmental and I've lacked grace. And I've had so many moments where I felt anonymous and invisible. Like, what in the world could Jesus want with me? I'm not bringing very much to the table. And if you resonate with one or more or all of those guys, I think there's something in this story for you. Because what I think is so cool about it is it's not just a picture of how Jesus invites all manner of messed up, broken, imperfect people to the table with him. It's a reminder for us that Jesus' invitation to the table doesn't depend on what you bring to it. It doesn't. This is so important and so huge. Jesus' invitation to the table doesn't depend on what you bring to it. And that's a complete 180 from the way we live every moment of the rest of our lives. We live in a world where your invitation depends on what you have to bring. You're invited to the team because of your sick skills. You're invited into the company because of your great resume. You're invited to the cool kids table because of your amazing fashion sense. You're invited into the inner circle because of your killer performance. You earn every invite you get in our world, but that's not how Jesus operates at all. He has this whole different mindset. You guys, Jesus isn't concerned with what you bring to the table. Jesus is interested in what you need from it. That's the only qualification to get an invite. Need, and need alone. And Jesus' invitation for you to be with him, to eat at his table, has absolutely nothing to do with your skills, your gifts, or your resume. It has everything to do with his love. I mean, he's not the guy who said, come to me, all you who have something amazing to offer. He's the guy who said, come to me, all you who are weary 
burdened and heavy laden and I'll give you rest? Are you beaten down? Are you broken? Do you feel like life is too heavy for you to carry it right now? Are you desperate for hope and for meaning and for life and for forgiveness? Come sit at my table. And it's incredible in this moment that Jesus invites this messed up crew of guys to sit at the table with him because they're a bunch of people that had absolutely bailed on him and they didn't deserve the invitation. And we know that they'd bailed on Jesus, that they had basically given up on him because of what they're doing. John kicks it off by kind of listing the people who were there. And then in verse three, he writes, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now listen, these dudes had already met the risen Jesus. They watched him die, and then they met with him after he had been risen from the dead. They saw their living Savior. It's the most mind-blowing thing anybody had ever seen. And so they probably should have been on a mission trip, not a fishing trip, right? But don't mistake what they're doing. Peter says, I'm going fishing. It didn't mean he was going to try and snag a few bluegill off the dock while he was waiting for Jesus. These were professional fishermen. It's what they did for a living before they met Jesus. And so it means something when Peter says, hey, I'm going fishing. It's kind of like if I told my wife, Jenny, I'm going to play basketball. She would assume that meant I was driving to the YMCA or the park to attempt to put a leather ball through a metal hoop because that's what it means when I say I'm playing basketball, I'm going to play basketball. But in 1995, in one of the greatest moments of my life, After two years of playing baseball, when Michael Jordan called a press conference and said, I'm going to play basketball, nobody figured he was headed to the park. So when Peter says, hey, I'm going fishing, he's saying, Jesus ain't coming. I used to think he had a plan for my life. I used to think he wanted something for me and from me, but I don't think it anymore. I'm about to make a career change. And the rest of those guys are like, yeah, that sounds smart. We'll come with you. And so they go out fishing and they catch nothing, which has got to be pretty embarrassing because it used to be what they did for a living and they're trying to do it again and they're clearly bad at it. And then some guy starts yelling at them from the shore. We read, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, do you have any fish? No, they answered. This seems like a pretty innocuous conversation. Just a normal moment to have, but something interesting is going on because Jesus doesn't use the normal word here for fish. We're talking about catching fish or going fishing or eating fish. There's a Greek word that means fish, but that's not what Jesus asks. He uses this different word that kind of meant a bite of fish or a morsel of food. He basically yells out to the disciples like, hey, you guys got a bite to eat? I'm hungry. You got a bite to spare? And they say, no, we got nothing. We haven't had any bites all night. We're bringing nothing to the table. And Jesus says this. He says, oh, 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 throw your net in on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And just to be crystal clear here, when Jesus says to throw your net in on the right side of the boat, this is not an ancient veiled reference to the liberal left and the righteous right and I know 99% of you are thinking, I would have never thought that in my whole life. But for the 1% of you, they're like, right is right. I'm using this in my next fight with a Democrat. Do not do that. Please, Jesus is just telling them where he put the fish, okay? So he's like, hey, I put the fish over there. 
And that had to be kind of insulting. They're like, what do you know, shore guy? We're professional fishermen, but also we don't have any fish. So they try it, and, and this is what happens is when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the huge numbers of fish. And this is so incredible. Jesus is like, hey, you guys got anything to eat? And they're like, no. And he says, that's okay. I got it. Just, just put your nets in over there, and you'll catch the fish. And this is what blows my mind. Jesus just supplied what he was asking them to give. He just placed into their hands exactly what he asked them to hand him. And this, like this is the key to understanding whether or not there's a catch with Christianity, to getting a picture of what it is God wants for you. And here it is. Jesus only asks you to give out of what he's already given you. He never asks you to give more or different or anything beyond. So I want all of us to know this morning, if you've been feeling there's some sort of fine print with God, like he's asking from you more than you have to give, like you can't possibly deliver what God wants and he's just going to be disappointed with you your whole life because you don't have it, then something got twisted along the way. Somebody told you wrong because Jesus never asks from you anything other than what he's already given to you. That's what he did for this raggedy crew of disciples. They fished all night and caught nothing. And then they tried what the guy yelling from the beach said to try. And all of a sudden, bam, there's all the fish. And one of them has a light bulb moment at this point. He's like, oh, we know how to fish, but we didn't catch anything. But all of a sudden, all the fish are right with them. That is Jesus. That's Jesus up on the beach. The disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, he said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his, outer, his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. Now you could read this kind of quickly and miss a couple of the details, but this right here, this part of the story, is why I am convinced at the core of who I am, you guys, that the Bible is true, and all this stuff really happened. John writes that Peter got warm while he was fishing, so he took off his coat. We can wrap our minds around that, right? And then Peter, full heart, empty brain Peter, realized it was Jesus on the shore, and he's like, oh my goodness, I was wrong. We shouldn't have gone fishing. Jesus is here. I'm just gonna swim to him. And so he puts on his coat and dives in. He put on his coat to go for a swim. This is a dude who spent his entire life on or around the water and he became the first and maybe only person in the history of the human race to think, you know what could help me swim good? A nice layer of outerwear. More clothes. That's the answer. And I'm convinced John writes this only for two reasons. Number one, to make fun of Peter. They're best friends and we're one chapter away from John being like, Mary told us the tomb was empty so me and Peter took off running. I'm faster than Peter. I got there first. Just let all of the history of the world, remember, I am faster than Peter. And so he writes it down to give Peter a hard time, but also because it happened. There's no doubt John's cackling while he writes this. He's like, yeah, Peter put on his coat, and then he jumped in and went for a swim, and the rest of us just rode. We weren't very far. It was like six rows. We passed Peter along the way. We looked over like, don't drown, dummy. <laughs> like, I love it. This is real. When this book was written, you guys, Peter was the leader. He was the 
point leader for the Jesus movement on planet earth. When you're trying to get people to join your movement, you're trying to help them see that it's legitimate, you don't usually tell them the leader's a moron. Ask anybody who lives in Russia or North Korea. That's not how it works. You've got to pretend the leader's perfect, but not the Bible. It's a real raw book full of real raw stories about real raw people. And John's like, Peter, my buddy, my leader, he's a coat swimmer. It's just <laughs> empty. Running is not the only way that he's slower than me. Like, he just writes it, and it's so great. But anyways, they get to shore, and then soaking wet, Michael Phelps, Peter Wannabe, he gets to shore with his coat. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. I think there are two things here that are absolute game changers for us. Like sometimes we look back at the mistakes we've made, at the places we've failed, and we convince ourselves that even if God had a purpose and a plan for our life at some point, he couldn't have it anymore, that we're too far gone, that, that we're too messed up, that there are too many wrinkles in our stories and too many scars on our lives and on our memories and on our histories for God to ever do anything good with us now that who we are, what we've done and where we've been kind of disqualifies us from being a part of his family anymore. But I read this story and I'm reminded nothing could be further from the truth. Here's a group of guys Jesus had every right to reject and be angry at. I mean, they abandoned him when he got arrested. They denied knowing him when he got killed. They saw him risen, and they pretty quickly lost all hope again and abandoned the mission and went back to the fishing. But instead of condemning him for that, instead of yelling at them for that, instead of telling them, you guys are out, you're out forever, you've abandoned your purpose, you failed me, Jesus cooked some breakfast. He doesn't turn his back on them because they're broken. He makes them breakfast because they're broken. He doesn't run away from them. He runs to them. And I'm so grateful for that because that's the exact same thing Jesus does for you and me. The other thing that jumps out to me from the story is the weird reality that Jesus asked if they had any fish to eat. And they're like, no, we don't. And then he told them where to catch the fish. And so they caught the fish and they brought the fish and then they showed up and Jesus was already cooking fish. I don't have a frame of reference for that. Jesus was confusing a lot of the time. But this is one of the most confusing things he ever did. Why in the world would he ask them to bring fish if he already had fish on the grill? Like, do you want the fish or not, man? And here's what I think. As I look at this story, as I look at the pattern of Jesus' life, as I look back at my own life, I can't help but feel like maybe everything Jesus asks us to give is really an invitation to receive. Maybe everything God ever wants from us is tied to what he really most desperately wants for us, to purpose, meaning, hope, joy, and life. Like, there are things I look back on and realize God asked me to give. I gave like a whole season of my life to studying theology and the Bible and church history and Greek and Hebrew. And what I got in return for that was this deep confidence that God is who he says that he is and he's good. Even when I don't feel it, 
Even when I can't see it, he has always been good and I can trust him. God's asked me to give him my time in prayer and worship and his word and reading the Bible and what I've received back from that is joy and a peace that's greater than any peace I could have gotten anywhere else. God's asked me to live a life with open hands and a willingness to, to give anything and everything he may be put inside of them. And it hasn't been comfortable all the time. I haven't always wanted to give what he asked me to give, but what I've received back from that is a life that is anchored and a sense of security that is anchored not in the things I've given away, but in the one who gave them to me. And I can tell you this, I would not trade any of the things I've received back ever for any of the things God asked me to give. And it isn't always more. And it isn't always the same. I've heard people stand on a stage and be like, if you just be generous with your money, God will give you back even more money or your time. He'll give you back even more. First of all, I don't understand how God could give us more time than we gave away. I don't want it tacked onto the back end when I'm senile and everything hurts. Like, don't, don't give me more time back. But also, like, the, the money bit. God doesn't always give you back more money. This is an ROI thing. Like, I, I've given money away, and I'm not driving a Ford Focus because I think it's cool. <laughs> but, like, I just, I need us all to understand, God doesn't always give you back more of what you gave, but he always gives you back better than what you gave. Every single time. I can look back at my life and promise you, God will give you back better than what he asked you to give. You guys, everything God wants from us is tied to what God wants for us. Everything he asks us to give is an invitation to receive, which is why he doesn't ask us for more than what he's already placed in our hands. God is in the business of blessing us, not breaking us. But I don't know about you. If you're anything like me, though, that's hard to remember sometimes. It's hard not to feel like our mistakes are too big for God's grace to conquer. It's hard to feel like we shouldn't have done, or it's hard to not feel like we should have done more. We should have brought more. We should have been better. And God is just disappointed in us. He's disappointed in what we've done and in who we've been and in where we've been. And we can almost feel the frown of heaven. We feel like there's, there's no way now that God's not just disappointed with the massive pile of failure that is my life but I don't know what to do. I don't know how I can get from here to there because it's heavy and I can't keep going and I don't have enough. I don't have what he's asking me for. And we worry in those moments that maybe God's so disappointed at us that he's just saying, well, figure it out. Just keep trying. Could you just try a little bit harder? There's work to do. Get over it and keep going. But he's not. He's not because he's a better father than I am. Last Sunday, my son Jimmy had his first ever tackle football game. It was really fun to watch, and he did good. And he, at one point, made a tackle in the backfield. It was good, and then he got stepped on. And he came off the field kind of shaking his hand a little bit, and he was beckoning me out of the stands. So I kind of went down to the fence, and he went over to a bench, and he pulled off his glove. He's like, Dad, I think I dislocated my finger. And... I couldn't really see. I don't know. I just thought he was being wimpy and whiny about it. So like any good concerned father, I yelled out, does it hurt too bad to keep playing? And he went, I guess not. And so I said, 
warmly. Well, then shut up about it, put your glove back on and finish. Be tough, we will worry about it later. Later, we learned it's broken. It's just dangling. <laughs> He's got to wear a splint for a while. So that was an amazing fatherhood moment that Jenny will never let me live down, ever, because wives, and Jimmy probably won't either. But you guys, sometimes we feel like God's like that. Like He's like idiot jerk Mike. Like We're like, it's too heavy, and God says, suck it up and deal. But that's not what he's doing. In those moments where we feel like we can't keep going and it's too heavy, God is not asking us to try a little harder. He's just asking us to trust a little more. What he wants to do is bless us, not break us. It's just the exact same thing he did for these disciples, right? He put 153 fish in the net and John, who's a guy who knows something about fishing, said the nets should have broken. That's too many fish for those nets, but the nets didn't break. Don't miss that part of the story. Jesus blessed them without breaking them. He wants to do the same thing for us. And I know there are some of us sitting in here today who feel like that couldn't possibly be true for us because of the mistakes we've made. We've been running from God for a really long time. We've hurt other people. We've hurt ourselves. And we're like, I I cannot imagine walking around without the weight of this guilt and the weight of this shame. And there are others of us who just feel like we haven't given enough or done enough or paid God back all that he probably expects us to pay back. And we don't have the ability to pay him back, and so he's probably just out on us. And I want you to know this morning that that's not true. It's not true. You're never too empty, never too broken, never too far gone for a God who invites everyone to sit at his table. You know, next week, I'm I'm really excited. We're kicking off this brand new series called Paper Walls. We're going to talk about that feeling that, that we're cut off and held back and dig into the idea that everything that feels like a wall standing between us and the beauty, us and the stories God says we were created to live is a paper wall. It's fake. And I'm pumped about it. I think if you can make it back next week, you'll be glad you did. But this morning, all I want from you is to walk out of here knowing what God wants from you. I want every single one of us to leave today knowing that we know that we know God doesn't care what you bring to the table. He just wants you with him at the table. That's it. That's it. On a brisk morning, on a beach, by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus invited a hypocritical, Skeptical, cynical, judgmental, egotistical, invisible crew of disciples to eat with him at the table. And he gave them more than what they brought him. Right? They brought betrayal and he gave them breakfast. They brought some fish and he gave them fish and bread. And Peter, soaking wet, coat swimming Peter, showed up with his failure and Jesus handed him a future. He gave him a mission and a purpose and a leadership role to step into. And I want to tell you this morning, he wants to do the exact same thing in your life. If you will just believe that he loves you so ridiculously that he stepped out of eternity into the human story and gave his life so you could be forgiven and set free, that he rose again so you could be reconciled to him forever. If you'll just believe that that's true, and you'll surrender to him. If you'll accept his invitation to the table and understand that all he wants is you with him at 
the table, then the beauty of that and the future of that can be yours. Jesus will write a better story for your life and the life of everybody you crash into. And the best news of all is that it's completely free. You can believe that today for the first time or for the first time in a long time because you've been running for a while or for the 400th time because you keep on doubting it, but there is no cost to it. Just like the food and the ice cream and the party that's waiting outside right now is free. There is such a thing as a free lunch. It's God's invitation to the table with him. And you don't ever have to pay anything because Jesus already paid it all. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we do things like the block party. That's why we live with an unquenchable hope even in the middle of this shattered space we occupy because Jesus said, you're welcome at my table and you're loved. And that changes everything and it's worth celebrating. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for inviting us to your table. Thank you for not abandoning us to our brokenness, to our fears, to our faults, to our failures. Thank you for caring so much about every single person in this room that you reached into our stories and said, I love you too much to leave you where you are. Come sit at my table. I pray that all of us would walk out of here knowing that it's true this morning, knowing that it's free, knowing that you love us, knowing everything you've done for us and accepting the beauty and the freedom of trusting you and sitting with you at your table. Lord, I ask that today, and I, just, I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for, for taking the brokenness uh, of our moments and, and our cynicism and our failure and our hypocrisy and our skepticism and our invisibility and, and say, no, 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 I see you and I love you and I have a hope and a future for you. Lord, would you help us step into that today in a way that not only changes the story and the future for us, but that changes the story in the future for everyone around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.